You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. An erotic dream. What's her name? She's Helena. From which he cannot awaken. A dark obsession. You're everything to me. You're nothing to me. He cannot control. Nothing to me. You had the faintest idea how to make me feel good. Make me feel good. What is it going to take, Nick, for you to realize I don't want anything to do with you? She is a woman he will do anything to possess. You have done a very bad thing. Anything. You should see what he's done to me. I had to operate here in the lab. This is unheard of. Why isn't she in the hospital? I took care of it, Alan. What about your life? I love her, Alan. Beyond love. Take her. Beyond obsession. Take her. There hides something. Beyond reason. You should see what he's done to me. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Rob St. Mary's currently on assignment in Rio looking into Judy, but we're not going to talk about Judy at all. We're going to keep her out of it. Instead, this week we're joined by Heather Drain. Hello. Also with us for the first time is the one and only Cecil Trachtenberg. Hey, thanks for having me, man. Finally, huh? Finally, I know. What, t- what took it so long? I don't know. Just had to find the right movie. This week we are talking, in honor of Boxing Day, we're going to be talking about Boxing Helena, the 1993 feature film debut of Jennifer Chambers Lynch. The film stars Julian Sands as a doctor, Dr. Nick, whose mother has recently passed away. He inherits the house where he grew up, along with some of the nightmarish memories that go along with it. He's infatuated with the titular Helena, played by Sherilyn Fenn, with whom he once had an affair. He decides to kidnap her and make her fully dependent on him by amputating her limbs. Let's just say that things don't entirely go to plan. Cecil, as our guest, when was the first time that you saw Boxing Helena and what did you think? Um, I saw it on cable uh, probably late 90s. And uh, the reason I was watching it was because of uh, Julian Sands, because I was a big fan of his from uh, the Warlock movies. And uh, I was like, oh, cool. You know, this guy's awesome. He'll you know, he's in this movie called Boxing Helena. And uh, it looked kind of like a um, a horror movie was the way that they presented it. So I sat I'm watching it and I'm like, um, what? Because <laughs> it was it was very bizarre. And uh, I, I I had enjoyed it. But um it definitely was more of a head scratcher. It didn't really affect me uh, until later when I watched it again, when I was a little bit more versed in a lot of uh, types of cinema, when uh, I kind of uh, was 
used to certain things and like the second time I saw it was more like later in the 2000s and I was watching it and I'm like, oh, this totally feels like a like a Lynch movie. And then I come to find out, oh, it's his daughter. Okay, that kind of makes sense. Not as strong as, uh, you know, a Lynch movie, but it had his kind of visual flair and that weird feeling that a lot of his movies uh, get into. I dug it, um, but I mean, there were certain things that uh, I could have done without. I did feel uh, it was a little soap opera-ish at times, and uh, I really would have preferred um, a better ending, but uh, I don't know if you want to go into spoiler territory or not. So We will get into spoilers, but it'll take us just a little bit before we get there. Yeah, and also uh, just one thing that really uh, I always thought was funny. Uh, Art Garfunkel, completely with that hairdo, looks like Larry Fine. So every time he showed up as like the uh, the psychiatrist friend, I just would start laughing. (laughs) I'm warning you. How about you, Heather? Well, it's funny because I remember uh, when Boxing Helena first came out, actually much like Cecil, uh, the thing that immediately intrigued me was Julian Sands because I loved... Uh, I too was a fan of the Warlock films and Julian Sands to me is a, as actor who's just interesting in everything. And, um, you know, and I liked Cheryl and Finn. Um, it took me several years to get to actually watch it. Cause when it came out in 93, uh, I was, I was a, a young adolescent. So it's not like my mother was gonna, she was liberal, but <laughs> she wasn't, I don't think she was going to let me rent that one. Cause it was, um, the whole promotion of it was like a sexy soft core kind of dark film by the time i finally got to see it i'll be honest with you i I was actually very disappointed in it but i don't know if that is partially because by the time i saw it i'd seen a lot of art films that were way kind of more outside the fringe and outside the outer parameters of uh of mainstream cinema where i felt like boxing helena had some good ambition behind it and i think there are interesting elements but i feel like to me, there was just something not very fully formed, I would say, plot-wise and character-wise with that film. It almost feels like a half a film to me. I actually saw this one in the theater. I, it showed at the theater where I worked back in the early 90s. I seem to remember it opened in Theater 4, which is kind of surprising because it was uh, one of our medium-sized theaters. Because this, even though it, it seems to have done pretty good at the box office, I want to say it died a quick death, at least in the Midwest. Because not a lot of people were interested in seeing Boxing Helena at this point. I liked some of it. I really disliked the end. But then I was very troubled that I disliked the end just because I'm like, well, what does that say about me that I wanted this to go one way and it went another way? (laughs) So (laughs) this is one of those movies that has kind of fascinated me for years and years. And then when the opportunity came to talk to Jennifer Chambers Lynch, who we'll hear from later on in the show, I was like, okay, yeah, let's let's talk about this. It definitely has a very sordid history. I was kind of hoping we can uh, not get into all of the legal stuff that was going around. It seems like every article I was reading at the time was just going on and on about the casting and Kim Basinger and Madonna dropping out, yada, yada, yada. The one thing I do want to say about that casting stuff, though, is the whole idea of Ed Harris being the... Uh, Julian Sands character at one point he was supposed to be Dr. Nick and 
I don't know how that would have, it definitely would have played a lot different to me because Julian Sands just has that real vulnerability to him. Like he just seems like, like a, like a urchin who's kind of like snuck away from the orphanage kind of thing, you know, and Ed Harris just always seems like a much more macho type of guy. Even when he's dancing all goofy and creep show and stuff, he still seems to have his shit together. And Julian Sands just has that real, I don't know, like a, a little bit of a feminine quality to him, but just that kind of vulnerability and stuff. And just the, the I, I can't imagine two more different actors playing that role. So that I, I definitely want people to kind of keep that in mind as they go through and, and we talk about this movie. Cause I just, yeah, I, I couldn't see Ed Harrison there. Cause I think Julian Sands just does an amazing job in this film. Oh, absolutely. And, um, the thing I kind of liked also about his casting in this is that Julian Sands physically is like, he's a very handsome kind of gorgeous guy. Like he's a good looking guy. And to have like a man who's traditionally handsome play a hero, you know, play not play basically not even an anti-hero. There's really no heroes in this film. Oh no. Which I do like in a way. I think that's always kind of a really bold move of a filmmaker to do that. Um, and so I kind of liked that because I think I think if it had been a more traditional horror movie, they, it would have been just easier just to cast a man that women wouldn't find physically appealing, as opposed to Julian Sands, who look, you know, I mean, he's chiseled looking and just, um, you know, I have a lot of female friends who, you know, when I actually had one female friend today when I told her about Fox and Clay and her her immediate response was, oh, Julian Sands is in that. <laughs> Julian Sands always kind of reminds me of like a anime character who's come to life. Yeah, I would think if. Uh... If Sherilyn Fenn was kidnapped by uh, Clint Howard, uh, I don't really I don't really see her be, you know, like women really getting into the movie quite as much. (laughs) They definitely in that case, it would turn into more of a horror movie because she would have been uh, actively trying to get out of the house. Ice cream man to coning. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I think a Kickstarter needs to happen like right now. (laughs) Uh, I'm all over that. Well, there's two guys actually that are kind of vying for Helena other than Julian Sands. Uh, one of them is this guy, Russell, who's just this kind of non-character, uh, Russell with his scarf, which to me is one of the most amazing parts of the film when Russell comes back later with a scarf. But the other guy, the much more virile guy in this whole film, virile to the point of being able to pull off leather pants and a mesh shirt is Mr. Bill Paxton. Now, is there any kind of, uh, was he dreamy in any way back in 1993, Heather? I would say yes, but I'm, I'm a weird girl. <laughs> I mean, you have to keep in mind 1993, Heather also, you know, my 13-year-old self wanted to marry David Warner or Ray Davies. So um, so I, I, I would not ever, ever use myself or my taste as a perimeter for anything any other woman is going to find appealing. But, uh, but no, Paxton, I thought... In some ways, he was kind of my favorite part in this film because he was just so he was just so over the top, but kind of in a perfect way. I mean, like the whole like you know, Austin or whatever. I mean, that's a terrible line, but pa- the way Paxton says it, you're just. I mean, I loved it, and yeah, his international mail catalog wardrobe was. <laughs> Was was definitely something else. A lot of this movie, I was actually reminded of things like uh, the brain that wouldn't die. This whole idea of the doctor who saves his fiance's head, and then the head kind of ends up being 
more than the doctor can handle and really being this kind of force, even though it's just Jan in the pan and just barking out orders at him, because that's really kind of like once things get going and I'm very surprised at how long it takes for things to get going. The whole movie's a hundred or sorry, one hour, 45 minutes. And it takes 40 minutes of us kind of like building these characters, which I guess could be good, but it just seems to go on a little long. I definitely have to say that this fountain scene that happens fairly early in the film definitely goes on way too long. And I think that it could have been shorter had it been shown in normal motion instead of slow motion. We, the, the fountain. Um, so we're introduced really quickly to these characters. We've got the hotshot doctor, who's played by Julian Sands, Dr. Nick, which just always made me laugh every time I would realize that his name was Dr. Nick. Hi, everybody. Hi, Hi, Dr. Dr. Nick. Nick. He uh, is this hotshot surgeon who apparently saves this boy's hand. Uh, He runs into Helena at this bar where he's at with Art Garfunkel and Art Garfunkel's amazing haircut. (laughs) Um, And we quickly find out that there's this backstory between those two characters. And it isn't within a few minutes before we've got Julian Sands jogging along, all hot and sweaty. And he stops by Helena's place, climbs her tree, and starts looking at her and she's in a state of undress which was really nice for 1993 Sherilyn Fenn I have to admit that I had a huge crush on her from her Audrey Horn days and even her Two Moon Junction days anyway so and then it quickly ends up that Bill Paxton is also there Bill Paxton is Ray and Paxton and her are fucking like bunnies and Julian Sand is outside so immediately we get this weird relationship where he's okay watching her have sex with another man so it's like he's this kind of like cuckold character even though he doesn't really have a relationship with her though he wants to have a relationship with her and the strangest thing to me is that he actually has a girlfriend waiting for him at home which i always like i think it was like one point when she shows up in the movie way later on, I'm like, Oh shit. Yeah. She's a character. I forgot all about her even being around. Like I could remember our Garfunkel cause he kept showing up, but this woman who just shows up at his place one day, I'm just like, Oh yeah. I remember her from the beginning of the film. When he's spying on them, uh, I kind of got the feeling not initially, not so much that he was uh, being like a, a cuckold was more so that he's just like, obsessed over this woman and here's this guy who's in there who's having sex with her and he's seeing that uh you know oh god that's what you know i want not so much that he's like okay with it which is why like when he invites her to the party it's like he's trying to you know pull her back to his way but really it seemed like he did cheat on his girlfriend with uh helena but it was like a one and done thing. Like it was like, like he thought of it as much more than she did. So that's why she's kind of like, ugh, whatever. And then, um, she's moved on. They never really said, you know, how long ago it was. So I'm guessing it's more, it's kind of fairly recent. Uh, but then she's with, um, Bill Paxton, who I think is a good looking guy, but in this, he looks ridiculous. With with that terrible, it looks. I'm pretty sure it's a wig. Uh, that just awful hair and those bad pants, and it really made me like laugh. It was like leftovers from like the 80s, where uh, where they were having sex and she got mad and stopped like halfway through, and he's all like, "I'm gonna go get laid," and I'm like, "Oh my god." 
<laughs> really? Check, please. Yeah, I was just like, um, you know, hey, Hudson, just stop. Was anybody else kind of reminded of this character in Near Dark? Because I almost felt like there were elements of that of this character from Near Dark. If you if you cross pollinated that one with like say a villain from a I don't know like a Doris Wishman Ruffy, like all like bad girls go to hell meets Near Dark meets International Mail eighties club Applebee's. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I was definitely getting a lot of chat from uh, Weird Science oh, in God, there. Oh God, yes. That's- you know, I kept waiting for him to go up to Julian Sands with a cigar and be like, How about a nice, greasy pork sandwich served in a dirty ashtray? You're stewed, butthole. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. If only he had said that in Boxing Helena. That would have been that epic. <laughs> uh, yeah, he definitely was channeling Chet a little bit. I mean, if you're saying hasta la whatever, you're really only a hop and skip a jump away from your stewed butthole. I mean, they're, 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 they're in the family tree. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's definitely a history of Nick being this kind of voyeur, because the one part I forgot was the setup to the whole thing. The whole movie starts with Nick as a little boy at this party, and we see his father, who's very cold and distant, like, you know, doesn't want to talk to his son, holds up his finger, like, wait a minute, you know, and doesn't really want to talk with him, interact with him. And then his mother is, you know, flirting with other men, definitely sleeping with other men. And we get a part where we see her in a flashback coming out of her bedroom, and it looks like he's been spying on her. So there's definitely a history of him being this kind of voyeur. And he seems much more comfortable in a voyeur role rather than being an active participant. I think he would have been happy perhaps being out in that tree and watching Helena all the time rather than actually interacting with her. It's funny because with the mother character, um, she really, to me, there was something about her that harkened back to the whole icy Hitchcocky and kind of blonde, which I thought was really interesting. Cause I'm one, you know, a, a woman who is yet, who is sexual yet unattainable and cold all in one batch, um, which is which is a complex mix. It um, definitely shows you how you know Nick developed his mommy issues because I mean Helena is this ridiculously good looking. I mean this film is like a pay on to Sherilyn Fenn's beauty in '93. I mean it's just every frame of her looks amazing. But Helena's kind of a bitchy, unattainable girl, just like Mommy. Yeah, I can totally see that when it comes to the Hitchcock stuff. And so many of Hitchcock's protagonists can be compared to little boys, you know, like especially I'm thinking Scotty in Vertigo, you know, when he's like, you know, what's that? Like pointing to the bra and stuff. It's like, what's this new hickey? It's a brassiere. You know about those things. You're a big boy now. The way that she treats him uh, just is very, you know, mother to son rather than, you know, any kind of uh, equal relationship going on there. Yeah, I get a major like Oedipal vibe from it. Like, I mean, what you what you said, I think, uh, with him being more of a voyeuristic thing, I think that that has a lot of weight to it. But uh, for me, it seemed more uh, like he was attracted to his mother and uh, she was just awful towards him so that's why uh when he had his regular girlfriend uh Anne, and she was like very nice to him and whatnot he really didn't want as much to do with her and when helena was just awful to him like that was what drew him to her it was that she reminded him 
a lot of mother. Notice how much more motherly Anne, his girlfriend, uh, played by Betsy Clark, I believe, is to Nick. You know, right down to, you know, I have dinner ready for you, honey. Do you want the chicken? Uh, right up till when they try to attempt to have love, you know, make love. And he, you know, premature ejaculates. And her response is, you know, oh, it's okay. You know, we can we can go out a little bit later. You know, it happens to, you know. She's a nurturer, but the nurturer is, you know, something he never got. It's alien. She might as well be speaking a foreign language to him. It, it, it doesn't, it just doesn't communicate with his id brain, you know, as a character. So the party scene, the, the fountain scene, as I like to call it, where Nick manages to get Helena to come to this party and it's him talking to this guy, Russell, Brian Smith, and they see Helena. She, I guess she goes up to this Russell guy or Russell goes up to her and then she starts to take off her clothes and get into Nick's fountain. Is that, am I remembering this right? Yes. Like, cause, cause he went over to um, Julian Sands and he was like staring at her and he went over to him and he was like, wow, who's that? And he's like, Helena. He's like, Oh, you know, I'm, you know, you got a girlfriend and he walks over and starts talking to her and she's like, Oh, hi, blah, blah, blah. And then next thing you know, she goes over to a fountain takes her clothes off and jumps in, you know, per- perfectly normal thing to do at a party. Speaking of Boonwell, I guess. Yeah, that scene, it's funny because I also wondered if there was like some shades of La Dolce Vita, except with way more slow motion. I mean, Christ on a cracker. That's slow. I mean, slow motion is a really, it's a ballsy move. I think for filmmakers to use it, you can use it. There's a way you can use it and, and make it work. I, I felt like, but if you if it doesn't work well, it's a bit cheesy, and then the whole intercutting because I believe there's a cut real quickly, and that scene to the caged bird, which is sort of like an allusion to what's going to happen to Helena later. Because right now she's the free spirit in the fountain, but that's not her future, or so we think. I, I was just thinking Red Shoe Diaries. I was. <laughs> well, and it seemed like a, a post effect rather than it was actually shot in slow motion and then shown to us that way. It almost seemed like it was slowed down in the editing room. Yes. Mm-hmm, yeah. Absolutely. Because it just had that kind of herky-jerk motion to it. And yeah, it just it, it really left me wanting for like a peck and paw or a woo as far as the way that the slow motion can be handled. And it seemed like maybe she should have been in slow motion and other things would have been in normal speed. But it felt like the whole scene was just like, okay, let's just take this and slow this down. It was a bit unnecessary, I really, but it was a bold move, and I, re- I do, I, I respect bold moves even when they don't uh, quite work. So that is definitely also where we get the scarf bit, where um, Russell, what takes the scarf from Julian Sands, and it's kind of like you know, I have the trophy at the moment kind of thing, and we do get to see the scarf return later on, which uh, I think that little scene uh, that we'll talk about later is probably the most Lynchian of the entire film. But again, we can, we can get into that through the party. Helena leaves her purse at Nick's place and she's going to go off to Mexico now with this Russell guy. It just seems like all this stuff happens really fast here. So she's going to head off to Mexico because we have to set up something in the film to say, that she's going to be out of town for a while. So it just seems like on a dime, she's heading out of town with this Russell guy. Bill Paxton finds out. He's very upset. Um, 
Julian Sands finds out because she's going to, she's at the airport and she's like, you know, you need to be, bring me my purse or she's going to be at the airport. You need to bring me my purse. He manages, manages to get her her purse, takes her back to his place because he forgot her address book on purpose. And there's all this kind of back and forth. And, you know, he, again, he wants to get with her. He just seems completely paralyzed as to what to do or say to break through her um, demeanor. And that's when we have this quote unquote fortunate accident that happens where it's just uh, this pretty amazing accident scene. I love this accident scene. I, I love when the car runs over her legs. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's just so funny to me. Just those legs are so fake looking. <laughs> and when they go over. And it also kind of reminded me just because of the way that the truck was coming. And we're cutting back and forth between the truck and with Nick and with the truck and with Helena and stuff. I was reminded of uh, that security guard in Austin Powers. Who <laughs> Austin Powers runs over with the, the uh, um, what, what is that called? Steamroller. Yeah. No. <laughs> just, no. And Austin Powers is just like, move out of the way. Move out of the way. <laughs> well, especially because I mean, it's like she sees it. And then there, you, it feels like it's almost like a minute of the car turning. It's, it's yeah. The editing in that was really a little dodgy. <laughs> <laughs> especially because it's such a pivotal scene in the movie i mean without this scene the whole movie really wouldn't take place so they kind of needed to put a little bit more effort into it it was almost like oh well you know it it hits her it runs her legs over and eh, it's good enough yeah <laughs> i was so reminded there's a compilation out there of people getting hit by buses in films <laughs> just because that's become like a trope now of like the person who's standing on the street and just a bus comes along, usually from camera left to right and just, you know, takes them out. And I was reminded of that as well, where it's just like, you know, I, I was kind of hoping like it would have been more of a surprise, you know, but yeah, instead it's just like, here comes that truck. You know, I was reminded also of pet cemetery a little bit where it's mm. just like, Oh geez, Gage, get out of the way. <laughs> nope. So that's 42 minutes into this film before we actually have this happen. And when Julian Sands, Dr. Nick, puts his new plan, I mean, he really wasn't planning this at all. It was just like a happy accident when he puts this into motion because now he's got Helena at his home, dependent on him. He had to amputate her legs. Apparently, he couldn't save her legs as well as he could save that little boy's hand. But he manages to, you know, help her out quote unquote, by amputating her legs and making her dependent upon him. And this is really the, the, the meat of the movie. So that's why it's a little bit of a, a frustrating thing that it takes us so long to get there. I mean, that's kind of the thing. And I think that's sort of symptomatic of the whole film is, is there's some choices made throughout this whole film that are definitely on one hand, I think really interesting, but on the other hand, I think a lot of them hamper the flow of the film and yeah, the, the buildup takes so long. And um, the one thing I thought was weird is that maybe, and I guess it just doesn't, I, I probably am overthinking this, but it's like, it looks like her legs got cut off by the knee. Yeah. He amputates the whole thing. I mean, there's all the way no up. Thighs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I guess that, that, of course that, you know, plays better. It's, it's more of a, a startling image for her to have no legs than half legs. I kind of wished that I didn't know that that was going to happen. Because I can only imagine uh, watching the movie 
and being like, oh, wow, well, you know, he's going to help her. And he got he cut off her legs like, you know, just the, the shock of that happening, because um, when when I had seen it, the description of it was basically doctor cuts off uh, limbs from a woman he's obsessed with, blah, blah, blah. So I knew that the legs were coming and I knew that the arms were eventually going to go, too. So it wasn't as big of a shock to me as it would have been. I I, uh, I would have liked to have had the surprise of that. So um, it was just weird because I, I kind of wonder, could he have actually have saved her legs or did he do this specifically with the intention of, uh, you know, keeping her a prisoner? Like this is one way that she wouldn't be able to get away because on one hand, it's like, all right, well, you know, if he does this, then she can't leave. But then on the other hand, she had really great legs. You know, being that obsessed, it's like, uh, you know, you, you kind of want to keep those things around. So uh, I don't know. It, uh, but they never got into that. So we said before that we're going to get into spoilers. So we should probably just say from here on out, no holds barred. We are in spoiler territory completely. So if you haven't seen the film, go watch it now. Do whatever you want. Come on back. We'll still be here. Because what I want to say is from here on out, also in the movie, we're in allegedly a dream sequence. So as soon as that car hits Helena, we're in a dream sequence. And this is where I really have kind of some problems with the movies because the majority of the movie is a dream sequence. I shouldn't be surprised. You know, this is Jennifer Chambers Lynch. Yeah, it's a surrealist film. Of course, we should have some dreams, and we should have some dreams within dreams, and we should, you know, go by dream logic. But it feels like there's this kind of weird mix of dream logic, not a whole lot of dream logic, and real world logic. So it, it doesn't necessarily have the right tone for me at times. I mean, and of course, I didn't know that the first time I watched this film. I thought this was all real. So then when the reveal comes later on that it was a dream. That's when I felt cheated. And that's when I felt like, what kind of sicko am I for feeling cheated that this wasn't real? Because now we get into the disturbing part of the film. It is like an interesting moral quandary because it's, um, cause it's the thing, the film, uh, and I guess it makes sense with the dream thing, but the one thing I thought was sort of weird about it being dream in retrospect was the whole scene early on when Kurtwood Smith's character, the great character actor Kurtwood Smith, that man does not get enough love. I mean, now I think most people are like, oh, that 70s mm-hmm. show dad, but he's, he's great in everything. I love him. And, um, you know, and he stops by and he finds Helena and he knows, okay, something's fucked up here. Something is not right. But Nick dangles that carrot of like, well, if I don't go back to the hospital, you get my job. Which is why he came over there in the first place to see if he could get it. And, you know, and Kurtwood Smith pulls it off so well because that character is really underdeveloped and he's just realistically just kind of a small reptilian sort of character within Nick's world or Nick's dream world, I guess. But that, 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 that look on his face where you could tell he's disturbed and he's torn, you know, that brief moral quandary of like, should I do the right thing? Because obviously something kosher is not going on here and this girl's drugged out of her mind. Because at that point, Helena is still very much like, you know, not really fully cognizant of what's going on. Or do I go for this job that I've been vying for probably 
10, 15, maybe 20 years even, you know? And you already know that Nick is this hotshot guy who's called in to save, like, the little boy's hand and all this kind of stuff. And Kurtwood Smith, the one time we see him before that, is really kind of put out by Nick being this savior character. Exactly, exactly. And I'm sure, and again, that's kind of another kind of brilliant choice of casting with Julian Sands, because, you know, here's this younger, here's this young guy, this young, good-looking, hotshot guy who's like the miracle man. And that some of the, you know, the nurses are like, Dr. Nick, and Dr. Nick does sound like such a soap opera name. Now, now that you've mentioned that laughing at that, I'm kind of cracking up over hearing it too. But, but yeah, I mean, you have that, but then when you have like the, you know, the ending and you realize it's all a dream, I mean, it almost, I mean, I hate to say this, but it made me think of robot monster <laughs> and I may be the only human on the planet whose mind's going to go to robot monster <laughs> perhaps. But I almost kind of wish, and maybe maybe I'm a sick person too, Mike. And uh, and I'm definitely curious to see, Cecil, what you think if you if you were sick like we were, because I almost think I would have respected the film more if it had gone completely down the rabbit hole. Because if the rabbit hole would have been like Nick dies because Ray is Ray is beating the shit out of him, a statue. This is wicked spoilers. Has of course symbolically fallen and killed Nick. His obsessions, hence his obsessions, killing him literally in some ways and helena is left there limbless and left presumably to just die and waste away in this house now that's a really depressing ending but what would have been bolder there would have been no bolder direction than that it'd be like the candy snatchers i was bummed with the ending um well there were a couple things that uh i'll get into and then i'll talk about the ending a little bit more but what i thought was funny was because it was a dream it was odd to me thinking back that there was the scene in the hospital where uh, Kurtwood Smith was talking to one of the doctors and was like, well, if he doesn't come back to work, then he's out of a job. You know, he must have gone to another hospital. And it struck me as odd that it was like that was really for the audience. That wouldn't have been in his dream. It's the same thing with all the Bill Paxton cutaways. Right. right. It's all just following him and even the the dude at the liquor store and the you know the i guess we don't see the woman at the flower shop the second time but yeah like all those external things like it should have just stayed in the house stayed with nick and i guess it would have been difficult because i mean a lot of movies uh that one location thing is hard to pull off and especially uh i know producers and whatnot will push you know, you got to get him out of the house. You got to make this more dynamic. You got to do something else. And it's like, well, the house is big enough and they had a lawn and there were enough rooms that they really could have kept it in the house, but not had it just in the same place over and over again. Uh, the other thing was, I don't remember exactly when, but somewhere towards the end, he was watching a video of Helena dancing in the fountain. And that was when I kind of started thinking, all right, this could be a dream because there was nobody filming this. Like, why would he have this on film of her, you know, when, when there's nobody filming this? So that, that kind of was one of my things where I'm like, I think this is, but might be a dream. So then towards the end, um, when Bill Paxton shows up and he automatically knows that, you know, he somehow did this to uh, Helena, even though, she never says, you know, like you'd think that a woman who had her limbs removed would be like, oh, my God, you saved me. But instead, she's like, no, 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 you don't understand. And then he beats the crap out of him and knocks the uh, the 
the the statue on him. I really think that that would have been a much stronger ending. Uh, you know, he gets his head cracked open. Paxton leaves. Nobody knows that she's there. And, you know, uh, after a couple of days or whatever, uh, some, you know, somebody uh, Anne or somebody comes to the house and finds both of them dead. Uh, like that would have been a lot stronger instead of the oh, my God, it was all a dream. That just I, I cringe so much. And I realized that this is a movie from 1993, so it wasn't quite as overdone. But now it, it, it's just like it, it's still can we can we just stop with the whole dream? You know, it was all a dream thing. Or at least if you're going to do it, there was a movie recently. I'm not going to say what it was that they subverted it. Like, you're like, oh, no, the whole thing was a dream. And then it turns out that it's like, oh, wait, oh, no, it wasn't. Oh, that's awesome. Like, you really, you're you're going in one direction and they put it in another way. So it would have been cool if it was like, okay, this was all a dream, but, and then they spin it in some way. But instead, they just, it was all a dream. And now he's haunted by, uh, you know, this dream that he had about, uh, you know, taking uh, Helena in. I don't think anybody, I can't imagine any past reviewers pointing this out, but I think your comparison to the whole Jan in the pan with the brain that one's eyes is actually kind of brilliant because it's like the more I'm thinking about it right now, that element is so strong. I mean, it's almost, I mean, I would say it's like a remake of it, but I mean, you know, I I would be curious if that had any sort of conscious or subconscious influence on on, on Jennifer Lynch. One of the things about uh, Jan in the pan that is, kind of upsetting is that even though she's just this head, she seems to have power over the doctor. And, you know, you would think it would be so easy to get rid of just this disembodied head, but no, he's obsessed and really he wants to do right by her. And that's Julian Sands as well with, with Helena. And the thing that I was talking about, why it's so upsetting that, you know, all three of us are thinking that we were cheated by this being a dream sequence is that by wanting it to be real, I mean, we're kind of put into Julian Sands' shoes quite a bit as we're going through the bulk of this movie. And, you know, when she is just completely badgering him all the time. And when things get a little too rough, you know, she's uh, got too much power as far as, you know, she can wheel herself around and all these kind of things. He takes her arms and makes it makes her even more dependent on him but yet she's still at no point is she ever well until right at the end which is kind of that like this must be a dream kind of thing at, at no point is she you know grateful to him or any of these kind of things because she is his prisoner and he is just constantly trying to chip away at her like the venus de milo statue that we see constantly in this film but uh she just never gives up she's always harping 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 and like the scene you mentioned it earlier when um dr nick's girlfriend comes in which also seems like an absolutely bizarre scene like she comes in and just immediately is all over him and like whipping down his pants and like wanting to go to town and everything it's just like whoa 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 this is a little fast here and i was like okay well this is kind of like a fantasy like as far as him being this virile man who this woman really wants to have sex with but then immediately gets turned on its head because he's just this premature ejaculator like he's not even like a a a three second man he's just done 
that's a really humiliating thing to have in your fantasy. And it's kind of nice, though, that if this is all a dream, if this is a fantasy, that he is so still out of control with it, that Helena is such a bitch to him through 90% of it. I mean, there's only a few moments where she is nice to him at all. Helena as a character really only seemed to have three modes, which was sexy, bitchy, and then almost tender, like towards the end. And a little bit vulnerable, but mostly sexy bitchy. That was kind of, which after a while, I kind of, that would be one of the things I kind of wanted more from the film is like, who, who is Helena really? Cause there's a, a line that she says to him and, and, and she's being angry and she's harping at it, but she's saying, I've never, I've never, so that basically the fact I've never relied on anybody for anything. I thought there was something really interesting. Cause I'm like, what was her past then? I mean, cause obviously she's this beautiful woman who's been chased, but you know, there's a lot of women who's on the surface, you know, and a lot of men too. You know, people on the surface are like, oh, this person's perfect looking. They must have a cherry life. And then you find out, no, they were, you know, maybe their father abandoned them. Maybe an uncle bad touched them. You know, I mean, who knows? And, um, you know, maybe mommy wasn't around. Excuse, ah, excuse me. It's, um, so I kind of, that, that little line and, you know, Charlene Finn is a good actress. I wish she delivered, it made me be like, man, I kind of wanted more of a, Helena's backstory, but if it's a dream, her backstory wouldn't have really been advantageous, would it? I kind of got a Stockholm Syndrome vibe. Like, I think that it was uh, towards the end, she finally had just given in to her captor and was like, well, I'm I'm helpless without you and and just more or less had fallen in love with him. So that was kind of what I think his fantasy was going for it was like okay well now i've finally uh quote unquote conquered this you know unconquerable woman um it is funny though that you mention uh that we don't really know anything about helena because we don't you gotta wonder what does this woman do who lives in this fairly lavish place uh that she can just up and go to mexico at the drop of a hat and nobody is really all that surprised about it or the fact that only one person really cares about it. And it's a guy who she just started screwing. That is an awesome point. Yeah, because, I mean, Ray, Ray's hardly a knight in shining armor. I mean, good Lord. I mean, if that's your knight in shining armor, then that's a that's a very sad fairy tale. Absolutely nobody, no family, no friends come looking for it, just like some mook that she probably was like friends with benefit situation and he got attached and she was obviously already bored with basically mm-hmm. is the only one coming to search for her. That's really yeah. sad. Gosh. Yeah. Like nobody cares. So I guess it kind of does reinforce the whole, uh, just self-reliant bitchy thing. But again, what does she do that she can just be that? And, and I mean, have a career of that, you know, yeah, and she is able to order copious amounts of liquor and just put it all on her account and everything. I've never had liquor delivered to me. I would kind of like to live in a situation where that could happen. I know. I'm like, what city is this? <laughs> it sounds lovely <laughs> to, to have the life of liquor delivery. Maybe L.A. Maybe L.A. has that. I think all of us poor Midwesterners and Southerners are... So another weird thing is that, so within this dream, we also have a dream sequence where Helena gets reformed and we have that nice moment where he, she's completely limbless and he's resting his head on her lap. So very much that 
mother thing again that we're going back to and then suddenly she gets her arms and legs and is able to now she's like instructing him about how to uh satisfy a woman and all this kind of stuff and then we kind of because we've we've already reversed the situation of uh dr nick looking in on uh helena and ray and with uh, him and his girlfriend where he had the, uh, the little accident. And so we do that a second time, though, with this. Uh, she's listed as fantasy girl in the credits, but I was assuming prostitute that he called over to the house. I guess you can have liquor delivered. You might as well have prostitutes <laughs> delivered, too. So, <laughs> And she comes in, and this has to be one of the most 90s scenes <laughs> ever because cue the enigma on the soundtrack which wow i forgot what a movement it was back then to like add beats to gregorian chants and stuff (laughs) there were cds and cds of this second stuff there was like a whole section at sam goody of like gregorian chants and enigma was at the top man and enigma also just fyi right next to Enya in the CD selection. Oh, yes. Well, they were all part of what I call the Pure Moods movement, which I'm sure it is. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine a world where time drifts slowly. A world where music carries you away. Experience Pure Moods, the perfect soundtrack for your way of life. Direct from Europe, this multi-platinum collection has won the hearts of millions. Set adrift with the timeless pleasures of tubular bells. Or take a trip into the unknown with the X-Files theme. No other collection gives you the feeling of pure moods. Order Pure Moods, call the number on your screen, or send check or money order for the amount shown, plus shipping and handling. Rush delivery available. Call now. Which also, strangely enough, had tubular bells on it, which I always thought was a bold, you speak, talk about bold choices, because I always got the feeling Pure Moods were for people, like for you know, older people to take relaxing baths too or maybe have like a, a romantic dinner can you imagine like having like a romantic hot tub date with somebody and you got the Enya and you got the enigma and you're like oh this is nice you know and all of a sudden you hear tubular bells you're like holy shit pazuzu's in here like what? <laughs> ah, 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 ah. <laughs> so, but uh which actually imagine tubular bells had been in the same that would have oh, wow yeah that mm. i would have preferred that because that i don't know i just kept expecting shannon tweed to pop up at that point because <laughs> anybody that grew up on Skinamax in the 90s and you start hearing Gregorian chants and candlelight and boobies you're like where's Andrew Stevens is this bedroom eyes too is this David Duchovny is going to come out and start uh, narrating the whole thing yeah I don't I don't know if you guys noticed the nurse the nurse at the end after you realize oh it's all a dream and she's like says something like you know, hello Dr. Nick or something like that that's the uh, woman yeah that was yeah. uh yeah Nicolette the... Scorsese yeah I just wonder if she's related to Martin somehow. I don't think so because um, I, I I had actually just done a movie called Aspen Extreme, and uh, oh she, nice, she played a uh, prostitute in that. 
when I was looking up info on the people, I was like, oh, Nicolette Scorsese. Well, that's got to be, you know, in some relation to Scorsese. And I couldn't find anything that said that she was. So that leads me to believe that she isn't because usually that's one of the first things that would, you know, they'd be all over. Oh, this is, you know, his, his niece or his, uh, his daughter or something. Her cousin once removed. Yeah, exactly. But it wasn't. So, uh, I think it's just a coincidental name. I actually was really happy when they started playing Enya or not Enya, uh, Enigma. Cause, uh, I, I really, really like that first CD. I actually have a few of their CDs, uh, it's, it's just, uh, not something that I listen to often, but it's the kind of thing where you just put on and y- you really just zone out if you, uh, uh, want to do that. I mean, I know back in the day, uh, there were people that would, uh, they, they'd light, um, some patchouli and, and sit around, <laughs> sit around and listen to Enigma and then uh, go into Enya and, uh, like October project and that kind of stuff. And, uh, um, as far as uh, the the sex scene where or not so much the sex scene, but leading up to the sex scene where Helena is telling um, Julian Sands, uh, Dr. Nick, like, you know, what does a woman want? What should we? Well, you know, younger me is all like, OK, I'm sitting there with like a pen and paper. I'm like, all right, uh, OK, take her from behind and <laughs> like writing notes <laughs> like I got I to gotta use this later. <laughs> did it work no it didn't <laughs> oh. well it uh you know it ah, whatever <laughs> the enigma works. The eni- oh the enigma oh it works like colt 45 man every time oh, yeah when you pop the top the panties drop the panties immediately <laughs> hit the floor this wet soppy sound <laughs> uh, yeah, it's like somebody threw a sponge against a wall <laughs> Well, this this is also the moment that I was talking about earlier where Russell comes back into it and gives Nick the scarf back like you are the better man. And it's just this weird cutaway. And like I said, this is the Lynch moment to me. This is what I've seen in so many of his films, you know, like Laura, um, uh, yeah, Laura Dern emerging from the darkness in blue velvet or you know um i know that there were scenes like this oh the uh the neighbor from across the hall emerging from the darkness in a razor head those kind of things because he just walks out of the dark takes that scarf off and hands it back and then walks back into the dark i was just like wow that is the most david lynch moment of this entire film <laughs> totally absolutely and it, it kind of um it was funny because, like you were saying about uh, the girlfriend, uh, Anne, um, when that guy walks back and gives him the scarf, it was, for me, that moment. I'm like, oh, right, that guy's in this movie. All right, what's yeah. he going to do? Like, nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> Hi, I'm Russell. You might remember me from about 40 minutes ago. Yeah, I didn't get a sex scene. I just went to the airport and apparently got stood up. Yes. And I never looked for her. <laughs> Bill Paxton looked for. Yeah. You got to see all of that. He's a real man. And Bill Paxton <laughs> is so smart that he actually talked to the guy at the liquor store and said, if anybody calls up and orders this exact thing, you are to call me. And gave him a crisp, I'm assuming, $100 bill. That's that's pretty steep, man. I was thinking like a saw buck. Oh, I, I don't know. I was like, I don't know. I'm like 100 bucks. So I went into like inflation calendar. And uh, or a calculator, and I'm like, okay, uh, hundred. Oh wow, that's about a hundred and seventy-three dollars now. So uh, that was that was pretty good. But I mean, you know, they don't really. 
show exactly how much he gave him, but uh, I kind of yeah. assumed that this guy being, you know, as flamboyant as he was, you know, walking around with his leather pants, he would probably, you know, pony up with a hundred bucks to uh, find out where this girl was. I'm not sure what position he holds, but I figure Bill Paxton has to work at a nightclub. Mm, Cause he keeps referencing the club. Yeah. Is he a rock star? Uh, you have to ask. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. That bad hair and the, and the leather pants. Yeah. I'm thinking that he's probably a rock star. <laughs> okay. He, think- he's a local cover band art. You know, he, he does all the crappy, uh, you know, covers of, uh, God, whatever was popular in 1993. That would have been your Alice in Chain covers right there. Ah, okay. Would have been doing the man in the box. Uh, he would have been the guy up there singing uh, Shine by Collective Soul, and all the audience would have just been doing the yeah! I'm thinking probably Bouncer, actually, if we're going to be realistic. he probably That's what I was thinking, too. Bouncer or Coke Dealer, because... Uh, <laughs> <The> Coke Dealer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because I don't think... I mean, if you're a rock guy in the early 90s, you were not dressing like that. I mean, guys that dressed like that back then were going to clubs that were playing... Whatever. I'm trying to think of any electronica that was huge in the early 90s. Um, I'm nope. thinking more like Hathaway. <laughs> you know, yeah, something like that. But uh, maybe some Richie Hawkins or <laughs> Plastic Man. Plastic Man, yes. Uh, yeah, Eiffel. Was it Eiffel 65? Einstein New Botten and uh, Utah Saints. Front 242, yes. 242. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I did not want to sully Eister Zenda Neubotten with Ray, okay? I'm a huge Alexa Bargeld fan. Let's not even go there. But, I mean, it would, I think, that's the thing. It's never, you never see anything, but Helena's obviously, she's a hard drinker. He dresses like a Coke dealer from the early 90s, and they both have a lot of money from where? So. Yeah, he's a sweet talking candy man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh. So, speaking of Man in the Box, the lazy reviewers, when they talked about this movie, just kept saying, guy cuts off woman's arms and legs and puts her in a box. And so I'm thinking of like, do you guys remember the Colleen Stan case way back? Uh, the woman who actually was kept in a box under a guy's bed? No. <laughs> that was a thing when I was uh, a younger man. There was this woman who had been kidnapped and kept at this uh, guy's house. Guy who was married. And the woman ends up becoming like friends with the wife and everything. And she had like major Stockholm syndrome. Like she was allowed after a while to go out and go grocery shopping and do all these kind of things. It was basically became like a slave around the house kind of thing. But for a while there, he kept her in a box underneath the bed. And so I was thinking, oh, okay, so it'll be kind of like that. But no, there's not really necessarily a box. So, I mean, the poster had the box, but there wasn't, I mean, she had like kind of almost more like a, um, a throne that she was sitting on. Yeah. I mean, the way that she was placed almost reminded me more of like a character, uh, out of a Hordorowski film than certainly anything out of a, you know, a kidnapped, you know, cause when I think, and I did research a little bit of that Colleen Stan case with this film, which boy, if you, if you want some real nightmare fuel, Ooh, yeah. look that up. Good Lord. That was, um. Some, some very heavy stuff, which actually, again, and you know, I know we'll go into this a little bit later, but with the whole genre of women in peril in being imprisoned, um, a film I mentioned earlier was The Candy Snatchers, which I think came out in 73 with Tiffany Bowling. 
and which is an excellent, excellent crime film. But the kid, they keep the kidnap victim in a box Oof. for most of it, and it and that film has a very dark ending, and um, there is no safety in dreams in that universe. So, Boxing Helena is definitely a lot more uh, gentle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I want to say that I read um, what was it called? Perfect Victim, and that's the the Colleen Stan, like the the not the tell all, but like the you know the the book. If you're looking to find out more about the case, that's probably the one that I would recommend. I know if I don't know if it's like the definitive or anything, but uh, if you want to start with a book, I. I Love true crime books every once in a great while. They're just kind of like a, wow, the my world really isn't that bad kind of a thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? This doesn't suck quite as much as being trapped under a bed with no limbs. Ah, oh, perspective. Yes. <laughs> yes. Hmm. He ends up having sex with this woman, um, the, the fantasy girl, uh, to Enigma and everything. And that, again, we have Helena watching him. And then she's kind of being coy. Like, I really wasn't paying attention, even though he's so proud of himself. That's like the one time that Nick actually seems very happy because he's finally had, like, fulfilling sex, it seems like. Well, it's because he didn't, and, it's cause he didn't it, finish on the floor in front of her like yeah. he did a couple days ago. <laughs> yeah splash yeah. <laughs> yeah i just picture like uh, a maid coming over and cleaning it up you know just yeah which <laughs> would you would you get that for me please thank you right <laughs> yeah you think there'd be a maid at this house too by the way yeah it's very immaculate yeah which i mean it it makes sense because it's a dream but in right. reality you know because it's like okay well nobody was there to clean it but yeah in reality I mean, because this took place over, they don't say exactly, but I'm going to assume a fairly long time. And everything stays pretty clean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at least three days. Right. I, yes. I, I, <laughs> at least three days. It's a very, very busy three days. Yeah, very, well, what else are you going to do on the long weekend? Work on your custom van? <laughs> well, Bill Paxton was. Yeah, that's for sure. I got to put in these progressive sharks on the side. Oh, my God. And I got a guy coming out to do uh, a mural on the side here. I got this fucking wizard, man. And I got this girl with these big-ass titties. And she's going to be riding a hog. This van's a-rocking, dude. Coming knocking, dude. Woo! See, I... I think you got you. You guys are making the, this movie be something. I really. It should. The, we need to crowdfund this movie. The story of Ray. Like we certainly do. Movie. But um, with the cleanliness of the house, I actually I never really thought about the maid thing because to me Nick had enough quirks. If he knows where he's continually changing his clothes, he's very neat and orderly. He's not going to work. You know, uh, so I just, he just to me seemed like a very type A personality to where I could see him. This is how mother would want it. So let's keep it clean. And he keeps shoving, uh, he keeps shoving cotton in his ear. Right. Yeah, which they never mention. It just, he just does it and they don't explain it, which kind of, I liked and I disliked because at the end of the movie, I'm like, what the hell was wrong with his ear? Like <laughs> They never told us. So then I, I actually, um, uh, I managed to track down a copy of the director's cut, the, the laser that was on laser disc and so I was like, okay, you know, finally we're going to find out the mystery of, you know, why he kept putting cotton in his ear. And then the whole movie was the same as the unrated version of the movie, with the exception of the last line of the movie. Uh, in the um, director's cut, the last line of the movie is not there. So that was the only difference. 
What was the last line of the movie? Uh, the last line of the movie, I'm paraphrasing. It was something along the lines of, uh, I keep having that dream, that dream about Helena. Basically saying that, uh, you know, he because he wakes up and, you know, Anne's in bed next to him. And he runs out and he holds the uh, the Venus to Milo. And um, he's like, uh, you know, in, in the uh, director's cut, he doesn't say anything. It's just kind of, you know, you're left to assume. Uh, but then in the theatrical cut and the uh, unrated version, you know, it's like, oh, I keep having that dream. So it's like, OK, yeah, this is an ongoing thing for him now. The audio commentary that was on the DVD was hilarious. Um, so it's uh, Jennifer Lynch through – you know, uh, she's there the whole time. At one point, Julian Sands just kind of shows up, like <laughs> as they're recording, and he comes in, he talks for a little bit, and then he leaves again. It was just like the strangest <laughs> thing that he just popped into the commentary track. He's just like, "Okay, I gotta go." You know, it's like, "Oh, all right, this is strange," <laughs> but it was nice to hear from him. So the end of the film. You already talked about the very last little bit here, and it definitely, towards the end here, we're getting a lot of, like, overlapping images of the Venus to Milo, of Helena, and of the mother. And there's the one part when, um, a little bit earlier in the film, when we, right before we get the revelation that he has chopped off um, Helena's arms, where we see the mother again, she visits him in this kind of... um, I don't want to say flashback because it might not be a flashback um, or it just might be a vision of her. It would be interesting if it was a flashback because she's sitting on the bed, completely nude, kind of her back to him, almost looks like a kind of a, a Salvador Dali kind of thing. And, um, you know, she turns and says, you know, you Nicholas, you have done a very, very bad thing. It, the way that she's, formed and the way that her arms are kind of hidden her legs are hidden she's also doing that kind of venus to milo kind of thing so she just looks like a torso in that uh, particular section of the film man that's a that, that's a great observation yeah i mean you definitely have the unifying strands throughout the whole film with the venus to milo and just actually one of my favorite shots in the whole film is uh is towards the end after when you find out after it's a dream where he's just kind of caressing it. I, I mean, but almost nurturing, not like in a sexual way, like he's nuzzling the statue and the way that that's framed is so beautiful. That's, I think that's actually, I mean, it's, it's a quieter shot in the film, but I love it. It's a really, it's really good. And to me, that's actually where I felt the, 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 the worst for, for Nick. Cause throughout the whole film, Nick's almost like, to me, it was kind of harder to sympathize with just because it's like, you know, I guess because just everything, you know, Helena, you can't relate to Helena. And he's just kind of a little boy lost. And it was sort of like harder to kind of read, you know, kind of grab a hold of anybody as a fully flesh human until that moment for me, for some reason, where it's just all the vulnerability. I mean, you're right. Julian Sands really uh, great. He doesn't get enough respect, I think, where people really should give him more credit as a great actor. Absolutely. All right, so let's go ahead, take a break, and play an interview with the writer-director, Jennifer Lynch, after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, 
a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Are you into sci-fi and like comic books, video games, movies, and books related to it? How about science and like to keep up with space news or technology inspired by shows like Star Trek? Maybe strange subjects like aliens, ghosts, Bigfoot, or conspiracies? How about board games or RPGs? If you answered yes to any or all of those, then you may like the shows of GalacticNetcasts.com. Our lineup includes The Alien Invasion, The Sci-Fi Geeks Club, Weird World Weekly, Adventure Party, and Galactic Net Bites for people with shorter attention spans. Where can I find all these, you may be asking? Well, the answer is GalacticNetcasts.com. Again, GalacticNetcasts.com. Hi, I'm Dave Nelson, founder and host of this podcast network, and I'd like to thank you in advance for listening. All right, I'm here with Bill Byforce and Mr. Chris to tell you a little bit about Outside the Cinema. All right, Reverend Scott, take Uh us to church. Uh, What can we expect to find from a typical show? Two hours of just random blabber. (laughs) Uh, Is there anyone's coattails you wrote in on to popularity? I'm the guy that burns the coattails and then pisses on them. You review all these exploitation, horror, comedy, cult, and often all-around terrible movies. You must have a strong driving force that keeps you going. Ego. <laughs> I don't know if I've heard you say that before. Uh, yeah, I've been saying that for a while. Really? I have been saying that for a while. Also, I'm high on smack. Well, it's definitely working for you guys. Yeah. People are coming out in droves to support you on iTunes. We just the other day got a, a, a one-star review on iTunes. Well, that is one That is one star too many. Let me tell you. The worst f***ing piece of shit I've ever heard. This has been great, guys. Thanks, Scott. Ah. Uh. That was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much. What are you working on these days? Um, I am uh, just finishing up season two of Finding Carter. I directed three episodes and have uh, supervised, produced the entire season, and then I go back to The Walking Dead right as this wraps, and then I go back to L.A. for a little while, so hoping that... uh, I'm really enjoying working in television and hoping that I can get a feature off the ground sometime soon, but having a really good time in TV. And I think there's a lot of brave stuff being done in cable, in, you know, cable television and television in general these days. So I, I'm sort of excited to be a part of it. And I love to shoot fast and TV shoots fast, you know? Yeah. We've talked to a lot of folks that have just kind of, picked up the stakes and said, that's it, you know, television from now on until the industry changes because it seems to be where it's at. 
Yeah, I mean, well, put it this way, you know, and I, I, I hope they don't, you know, cut my boobs off for saying this, but the new ideas and the bravery is, is in television right now. It's not in the film. So, you know, film is, has gotten real safe. I think I'm uncomfortable in, in too much safe. How did Boxing Helena come about? When I was 19, uh, I was reading my poetry weekly at a place called uh, Poetry in Motion, which was a group of poets, and, and our locations would change, you know, week by week, week hence the name. Someone came up to me after our, the reading was over and said, hey, I'm, I'm looking for a female writer uh, for a screenplay idea I have. He said it's about a guy who's obsessed with a woman, so he cuts her arms and legs off and puts her in a box so he can have sex with her. And I said, yeah, that doesn't really interest me. I said, but... You know, long story short, I was uh, born with clubbed feet and remembered being sort of unable to move in certain ways and being set in my grandparents' living room at the sort of the base of a, obviously a replica of the Venus de Milo. And I remember the face of the adult who had passed by me looking at her as if she was beautiful, even though she was broken. And I remember it giving me sort of this sense of hope that even in my condition, someone might someday find me beautiful. And I thought, too, that the Venus couldn't really harm anyone, and she sort of looked loving. And, and what if we were talking about obsessive love and the dream of of what it is to have someone? So what if her legs go away and she can't move? What if when she strikes him, her arms go away so she can't strike him anymore, and he, he worships her, puts her on a pedestal, but it's about obsessive love, and it, you know she's really in control the whole time. And he's like, I could go for that. That's how that happened. <laughs> so what's kind of the turnaround time here? I mean, initially, it sounds like you kind of balked at it. Did it take a week or two, or how did you no, kind I mean, of come we, about we continued to, to... We continued to talk. I said I just didn't, I didn't want to make a movie that was about... Um, basically, you know, The Collector is a beautiful film, but it's really about torture more than anything else. And I didn't think... There wasn't any sex or love that interested me in just cutting up a woman and keeping her for sex. But I had had many dreams where things went away as I needed them or appeared as I needed them in my dreams. And, and <clears throat> at 19, you know, uh, there's plenty of obsession going on in a young girl's brain. And I just sort of thought it would be more interesting to tell as a fairy tale about, you know, a very hardcore Snow White and a very die Prince Charming and that love. And so, the, it, you know, it was it was framed and written to be like an awkward fairy tale, a dark fairy tale, but with a little bit of a lesson in there, nonetheless, that, that uh, ultimately she was sort of in charge the whole time because of how he felt about himself and because it wasn't right love. And the second that she did love him because she believed he was the only one who would love her anymore, it was over for him. He didn't want her to love him for that reason. You know, and I really never, I didn't have any idea that the film would get made, really. And, and when talk of me directing it started, I, I hoped five people would see it and I prayed three would like it. And then, you know, of course, everything went a little haywire once Madonna and Kim Basinger and all that stuff happened. So it was strange for me to have, and I, a lot of it was due to the trial and a lot of it was due to perhaps mispromotion, but the idea that that uh, I was referred to as a misogynist or that it was about torture porn in any way seemed absurd to me. But, you know, I, I can be a little weird, so maybe it's just something I didn't see. But for me, it was really about the human spirit and strength and especially female strength. 
Do you think ultimately that the trial and just all of the publicity that went around that and with Madonna as well, do you think ultimately that helped the movie as far as publicity or was it just so painful that it didn't, you know, you can't see the good for that? Nothing gives you perspectives like time. You know, as they say, hindsight's twenty twenty. I think it was, I think it was terrible for the movie itself. Um, I think that, you know, if you tell people they're going to go see something like a horror film uh, or a nine and a half week with horror and they see Boxing Elena, there's no way they're not going to be disappointed. That's not how I would have sold it. So I feel like it, you know, it was like um, I have a kid with a, uh, you know, one of their fingers is, is uh, too short and he or she is nervous about going to school. And unfortunately, the day before the kid, my kid starts school, the principal goes in and says, all right, a retarded kid is coming to class, so just be ready. Sort of the wrong way to announce it. And it was just, it's a quiet little whisper of a film that I think, and it was, you know, for crying out loud, the first time I picked up a camera. So it was really like, I, I, and I think everybody, you know, everybody busted their butts and we were making a really strange, hopefully differently romantic film about how all of us just wish people wouldn't, hurt us and how we wish we were lovable to all those that we loved. So I, I think, I do think that it was, it was very negative as far as, as far as what I had wanted for the film. I think the producers felt differently. I think the producers thought any press is good press, but for me, it was, it was pretty painful because I thought nobody's seen the movie. They're just disappointed because they've been, you know, if you order a turkey sandwich and, and something else comes, it doesn't matter what it is. It's not what you ordered. But I'm very grateful, ultimately, for the experience. I mean, was it painful? Yes, it was. It was excruciatingly painful. But I, I wouldn't trade it. I mean, it's why it's one of the many reasons I think I'm, I'm sitting here on a set today and, and very happy in my life. You know, there's that. As the writer of the film, how did the story kind of change? Did it evolve as you were working on it, or did you pretty much have it set from some of those early conversations? You know, everything evolves as I'm writing it. I sort of know where I want to start, and I know um, who the people are, and then I sort of let them talk. But I always knew that I wanted it, uh, you know, not, not because I didn't know how to end it. I knew I wanted it to be a dream because I don't think it's appropriate for anybody to cut people up and keep them. I thought what was interesting about that was the, the yearning to do it and that the only thing in this man's house that didn't leave him or strike him was this statue that had no arms and was frozen in place. It was what he didn't get from his mother and father and, and this beautiful woman he felt he could have. So I, I knew I wanted that. And I also knew I wanted to tell people somehow that even in, this, in the absence of a full body, there was great beauty. And I wanted to see what happened to a character who, for the most part, relied on their physical beauty in their lives. You know, how would she then survive? How, how would she keep herself going? How would she continue to try and be in control and not lose herself? And that was why I think, you know, you know in rehearsals, Madonna was brilliant with Ed Harris. Kim Basinger was brilliant. You know, it's, I feel very badly that both those situations didn't happen. They're both very specific situations, but I don't, you know, I never wanted to make a film with anybody who didn't want to make a film with me. So it was very, I think the only argument I ever had was with Kim Basinger was, um, and she and I got along beautifully. 
I don't I don't even blame her. It's more representation that I took issue with where it was if you've changed your mind, that's fine, but let's not pretend you weren't doing this because we have your prosthetics, we have your wardrobe, we have rehearsals. <laughs> so, you know, we were we were just a couple of weeks from shooting, so it it was you know, it's like I was never mad about you have to. You know, it's like uh, nobody wants to play with anybody who doesn't want to play with them. That's just sad. In fact, it was very much about what, what the film was about. You know, you really don't want a playmate who doesn't want to play with you. You think you do, but it's it's a really sad place to be. Ultimately, Daryl and Fenn did a brilliant job and a brave job. And I had sort of hoped for the film that it, after all of that, it would have been forgotten enough in the press have its own life again but I think that uh, because the trial ended up happening after the film was finished you know it was just all rehashed but again I mean I, I truly have no hard feelings I know Ed Harris hung on for you know more than two years um, waiting to see if we could recast and he finally you know had to keep working as an actor doing other things um, I think Julian ended up being just the right you know actor for the part you know, and bless his heart for how many times I had to say, we're going to have to go again because you were just too scary in that. You know, he really needed to be weaker than she was. And, and that's a, a very brave thing for him to have done, too. I was playing with stereotypes and I was flipping a fairy tale on his ass. And I and I am forever indebted to the crew and the actors for trusting me. And I, I hope they still look back on it as fondly as I do. I, I wish that they had all received the recognition I think they deserved for doing something that brave um, instead of being told they had done something that wasn't what anybody wanted it to be. I think it's fascinating that people are talking about it now and appreciating it. I think that's really nice. And maybe that's the greatest gift in the world is that, you know, ultimately, even though we all spend a bunch of time in the fetal position feeling kind of badly about ourselves, <laughs> um, you know, that, that it wasn't all for naught. And again, for me, really, the process is so much of where the joy is and the fucking excitement, you know, it's in the collaboration, it's in the doing, you know, because I, I go to bed in the same bed I woke up in, but something exists now that didn't that morning. Other people and I together made that happen, and that shit's forever. I always had the, the experience to hold on to, even though the aftermath felt so painful. So it's kind of nice now to have people recognizing it and People say nice things like it was ahead of its time or what have you, which is, you know, an incredible compliment. Whether that's the case or not, it, it was what it was at at the time that it was. <laughs> and, it, it, you know, it was, I mean, there were so many things you could, you know, fuck it over with. Whether it was that I was the youngest female film director or that I was David Lynch's daughter or that there was a trial or that it was about a woman who losing her arms and legs. You know, I mean, like there were all so many things you could get weird about. And so it, it um, I, I still feel very protective of it. And again, it was so purposefully funny in ways that people didn't expect um, that I don't know that people realized I was doing that on purpose. And the frames are so specifically fairy tale frames, like, you know, picture book fairy tale that I, I don't think that anybody noticed that either. Um, they just felt like it didn't look like nine and a half weeks or Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And so I had innately failed. And so I felt, I felt badly about that, you know, I mean, and I do, I do know that the filmmakers, at least from my experience, don't have much to say about how a film is promoted, especially when something like a trial and all of that occurs. 
but I learned a lot from that movie and it definitely taught me no matter what that I wanted to tell stories whether or not I was going to be able to do it publicly would remain to be seen I was a single mother for many years I had three spinal surgeries I got sober and then I went back to work and made surveillance and it was it was great but I think that there was something very healing about realizing I'd invited the child into the world and that it was my job to make her feel welcome and getting to sort of have a childhood again and heal over some of the things that were said and, and that had happened. You know, it's like, uh, it was a really intense experience. I, I think it was in the New York Times that the National Organization of Women said that I didn't deserve to be loved because I'd made Boxing Helena. Oh, jeez. And I was like, you know, that of course is my deepest, darkest fears that I don't deserve to be loved. And, and I thought, wow, the National Organization of Women is saying that publicly? You know, I'm going to go crawl in a hole. But what always puzzled me was, you know, I don't go into a museum, and if I don't particularly care for a painting or sculpture, I don't suggest that the creator doesn't deserve to be loved. So it was obviously hitting buttons with people that made them feel very strongly one way or another. So what I, what I did was I just counted on the fact that, if nothing else, I knew that I had done the best I could at that time, each day of that, and that's what I was holding on to. You mentioned you know, that you have had dreams about having things when you need them and vice versa. Right, hang on one so, oh, sure. Oh, they want me inside. Okay. Um, tell them five minutes before I can finish this. I'm sorry, Mike, can, can we do this in five minutes? Or can oh, I call sure, no you problem. back after that? But, uh, they want me inside for a rehearsal. I will... Um, how much time, more time would you like? I mean, I'm thoroughly enjoying talking to you. I'm just trying to figure out how to schedule it so that um, I'm not making production crazy or you crazy. Oh, that's fine. It, you know, I mean, a, another 20 minutes or so would be great. If you want to do another day, we can actually pick up on a, if another day is better for you. Or I could call you back after this rehearsal. Why don't I do that? Yeah. Why don't I call you back and then I won't worry and you'll have what you need and I won't feel like I'm being an asshole. Okay. Yep. I'll talk to you later. All right. Bye. Bye. Well, that was quick. Hey. Hey. <laughs> hey. Sorry, I just went. I was like, please let me finish this. This guy's been very patient, and and uh, <laughs> so um, I think we can do another twenty minutes. <laughs> okay. Cool. All right. You had talked about dreams that you had had where you had kind of had things and not had them when you needed them. And then so much of boxing Helena takes place in this dream world utilizes dream logic. How uh, important are dreams are you for your creative process? Oh my gosh. I would say that daydreams are immensely important to my creative process. Dreams are probably where the stuff that happens during the day for me is revealed to me in a way that I'm I'm not willing to pay attention to uh, in the light. But the daydreams are are immensely important. I do these things. Uh, I stopped for six weeks, but for almost two years now, I've been writing one to three of these short stories every day on Instagram called Night Walk. And it's just I take a picture of a tree or something, and I give myself six to eight minutes, just stream of consciousness, do a story. And so I, you know, it's very short. It's got to just be a moment. It's got to tell me about someone and some event. And quite often they're very dark or about loss of some sort or something, but that some of them are funny, I guess, and romantic, but, but 
that's what I do with the daydreams now is I just want to keep that muscle going. And because I have ideas and questions about, you know, anybody who crosses my path, anybody who I see in the car next to me on the freeway, and, and, and I wonder about them, and I wonder if we're alike or how different we are or what they had for breakfast and if they're missing anyone or have they ever taken a life purposefully or accidentally? Have they, you know, all of these things. So I think that those those daydreams now, you know, um, have become the night walks and, and find their way into my, my writing and my directing on a very regular basis. You have uh, directed so many different types of movies. You've kind of, I would say, definitely you've been more in the horror genre than some of the other stuff, but you definitely have a different style when it comes to a lot of your work. I mean, Boxing Helena and Surveillance, they look so different to me. And same thing with Hiss and all of these different films. Who, what, what are some of your favorite directors? Who are some of your influencers when it comes to that? Oh, God, it's so funny. And you mentioned Hiss, which, you know, I've never seen because I, I don't consider it my movie because of how it went down. Have you seen a documentary about that? I have looked high and low for that, and I have yet to see it. Well, that's because there's only a private link until it comes out. But if, if, if you're willing, I will uh, send you that private link because I have never seen Hiss. And people who care about me say, don't ever see that movie because they turned what you were making into a B-grade bloody goofball horror film. I mean, I think Chained is the closest I came to horror, which was supposed to be called Rabbit, but um, the distributor said they didn't know how to sell a movie called Rabbit. <laughs> so, yeah, I lost that battle. But I think Rabbit is a really creepy, beautiful name for the movie and, and says a lot about what it is. And that was about the human monster. And so, yes, the horror element. Someone said to me in, a, in an interview recently, you sure like to capture people and keep them in one place. And I was like, Jesus, I don't know what that says about me, but you're kind of right. I guess in surveillance, I kept them all in interrogation rooms and in chained the boys there for 10 years. And in Boxing Atlanta, you know, he gets put in a box. But I think that, that rather than that being some sort of like, ooh, Jen likes to trap people, it's more about, it's very exciting to me. I think it's why I love uh, storm warnings or uh, the threat of an elevator breaking or what have you, because it's so much more exciting for me to see people in a situation they don't expect to be in, you know, like how the fuck do you handle it if you can't just leave the room? And so characters making those types of daily choices that are based on survival differently than they ever had to before. That's what fascinates me. So it's, it's that kind of story. And so I think that, you know, and, and Wound was brought to me as a totally different film. And I asked to do a page one rewrite. They bought the, um, the, uh, the script, and they bought the idea, essentially, of a serial killer who drove a taxi, who kidnapped a boy and his mother, killed the mother and kept the boy. And I wanted to know, I wanted to talk about the human monster and how does someone get to that point and what is the backstory and, and what is nature versus nurture and how did that man, be, you know, as a boy, become that man and what happens to this boy. And so, so, I mean, I love the, that character development stuff. And, you know, with, with his, I had a very specific thing in mind and, um, I was not able to do that. And then ultimately the film was taken away from me and, uh, and I wasn't told that I was just told, go home for the weekend, take a break. So it was a really very sad experience for me. <laughs> and, um, and yet I wouldn't trade it. I mean, I was very fortunate to have a roommate who was shooting this, or she wasn't my roommate at the time. She 
you know, came in town to shoot the electronic press kit behind the scenes and then asked if she could just stay and keep shooting because she thought there was something more interesting going on than just a behind the scenes thing. And so she stayed with my daughter and I in India for those nine months, ended up making a documentary. And, you know, not, of course, not everything's in the documentary that I would like to have be in there because I was the only one who signed off and said, you can show whatever of me you want. Um, the producers did not want certain bits of their behavior or moments shown and, and sort of the actors, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I think it's at least an interesting uh, look into how it's even okay when things go terribly wrong, because uh, in the same way that Boxing Helena ultimately turned out differently than I thought it would, I got over my own expectation of what it was going to be. I got to live in the memory of how fun it was to create. And now years later, some people are saying, hey, I really enjoyed that. And so maybe the the lesson for me is it's not in it's not about things turning out the way I think they should. It's about not resisting the way they turn out and therefore finding the gift in it. <laughs> the horror stuff and the the thriller stuff gets me because I just love seeing people in a situation that isn't comfortable. You know, like uh you know, um I I like the what will that person do question. How are they going to get themselves out of this? You know, how do you uh, how do you do that? That stuff interests me. And the human monster, the human wound. You know, I love broken people. I mean, I was I was the kid who would hang my hand outside my covers at night so that it, my hand was visible um, over the you know darkness under the bed because I figured that anything that was hiding under there might want to hold my hand because if it was hiding under the bed, it was ten times as scared as I was. So I, I really like not the evil the monster. And I think we, I think we build those monsters. I think that abuse builds them and hard times builds them. And that it doesn't, none of the horrible behavior in any of my characters is excused, but I love to try and find a way to explain it because it's, it's the human monster that to me is the scariest. Yeah. You put some characters in some very difficult situations. And actors, you get some really terrific performances out of folks. I mean, Bill Pullman in Surveillance, fantastic. D'Onofrio, Julia Orman in, in both films. So it's, Thank and you. then of course, the acting in um, Boxing Helena. How did Sherilyn Fenn, how did she feel kind of being this third choice for you, being Helena? I think that part of her was very excited. I think she sort of felt like um, it was meant to be. Um, I also feel a little bit like, um, she, I think the press was hard on her at times as if, as if she was, oh, the best she could get is someone who worked with her father, which I thought was really kind of fucked up. But I also think that it was all the more reason for her to really throw herself into a space where she could trust me because it was a scary thing. It was a scary thing for her to be that vulnerable and yet find some way to feel powerful. All of the women, Madonna, Kim, Carolyn, all of them at that point in their life had, had had great success and some things had come very easily to them because they were so captivatingly beautiful. The idea of losing part of that, the idea of losing their physical beauty or their independence or, um, or having to be strong in a way that was more exposed, you know, I mean, there's, it's, it's one thing to push your breasts up 
um, or to have sex with someone, but to get really naked emotionally, that's when you know you're into the real stuff. And that was sort of what I was asking of her. You know, one of my favorite moments in the film is when she begins to laugh when she's first in the box surrounded by the flowers. And um, her laughter so frightens Nick that he's forced out of the room and goes and sits on the other side of the wall. That was take one. You know, I did it one more time for safety because, you know, shooting on film, you always want to at least have one more. But that was take one, and it was perfect. I know she was really scared about that, and I also know that she really said, I'm just going to, I'm just going to, you know, trust you. And it was, it was a really, I mean, I have more blessings than I can count as far as actors saying, if that's what you think I should do, I'll do it. And, um, you know, because I will push and push and push, but my promise to them is to always be there on the other side to catch them. Because that's what I'm doing for myself. I very clearly make films that I would want to see. And although that brings me great joy, it doesn't necessarily make a lot of people a lot of money. (laughs) 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 So, you know, and and I don't pretend to know otherwise, but but I am interested someday in having people feel rewarded both emotionally and creatively and and financially by working with me and that would be nice It'd be nice if we all didn't wake up at three in the morning and say how the fuck are we going to pay our bills that's something i would i would like someday i think that's but i would also be really fucking happy mike if the rest of my life i did wake up at three in the morning and say how the fuck am i going to pay my bills but i still got to go to work as often as i could doing what i love you know if that's the trade-off then i'll just try to more successfully calm myself down at three in the morning, you know, because I, I do feel very grateful every day that this is what I get to do. If you're going to have problems, have storytelling problems, you know. It's funny that you're working in television so much now and you kind of, one of your first gigs was working in television a little bit by doing the Diary of Laura Palmer. Yeah. And uh, how was that kind of having to channel this character that, you know, you, I imagine you kind of were growing up with her a little bit. I love that. And, you know, when I was, uh, when I was 12, I remember uh, driving in the car with my father. I can't remember if he picked me up at school or not, or if it was, you know, a weekend we were spending together. But I remember being in the car and he was asking me what I was thinking about. And I said, I just wished I could find another girl's diary and, you know, stick it under my jacket and, and go home and read it and see if she was afraid of the same things I was afraid of or, or wanting the same things or fantasizing about the same things because I had a lot of curiosity and shame about, you know, how my brain worked. And I was an only child at the time. And, and you know, I think all of us, boys and girls, wonder if we're really different. And uh, when I was, I guess I had just turned 21 when I wrote it, my father called me and said, you remember that uh, time you told me you wanted to write or read another girl's diary. And I said, yeah. And he said, would you like to write Laura's diary? And I said, I sure fucking would. <laughs> and, uh, and so uh, he and Mark Frost brought me into a room and told me that I was one of very few air-breathing mammals who would know who the killer was and that um, I could go ahead and write, as long as I included the characters and the events that were necessary, that I could go ahead and write what I think Laura's diary was. And um, so and it, it's still to this date one of the most most successful creative control situations I've ever had. And epistolary writing is something I fell in love with. The teacher who changed my life was at Interlochen Arts Academy. His name is Michael Delp. And one of our writing exercises was to write a letter or two to a dead person. 
the freedom in that, and there were sort of letters as prose poems, but the freedom in that was you could say whatever you wanted to say. And if, you know, if anybody else read them, they were reading somebody else's mail, so they really couldn't judge you. I wrote letters to John Berryman, who I had, whose work I had really enjoyed as a poet, but I found out that he killed himself by jumping off a bridge. I really fell in love with that freedom in talking to someone who most likely would not respond. (laughs) And that if somebody else did say something about it, it was really not, not their business to say much. And it made me feel very free. And so the diary did the same thing for me. And and I was able to sort of build what I thought abuse and youth and dreams of a future and innocence and all of that stuff would look like if I were Laura. And uh, so it was it was really fantastic. And I you know I I I'm forever grateful to have had the experience and for the freedom that I was given. I know you got to get back to set, but if I can, I'll just ask you one more question. Absolutely. Your your dad has famously talked about how Eraserhead was really kind of a working out of being a father. Yeah. Do you feel <laughs> any kind of strange kinship with the baby from Eraserhead? Oh, deeply. Um, you know, the day I was born, they put me in casts up to my waist because I had really, really severely clubbed feet. And I always thought it was interesting that the baby was wrapped in what looked like gauze or a cast. And I loved the baby. Uh, Catherine Coulson remembers uh, very fondly that I would ask if I could play with the baby, and my father would say, of course you can, just don't touch him. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but the baby was a very big part of my life, you know, I mean, and that, that was my home. And I do, as a parent now, and as, as, a, as an adult woman who views her parents, you know, now as human beings, um, in the way we all sort of do as we get older, rather than gods or monsters. I do see exactly how an artist and a man like my father at that young age felt propelled into a world that seemed devastating and absurd and dangerous and impossible to live in. So I, I definitely feel a kinship. The, yeah, the baby is, uh, it has a special place in my heart. All right, we are back, and we are talking about Boxing Helena. Now, I mentioned this a little bit earlier as far as you know the press that was happening when this movie came out. And I have to say, a lot of people were just completely losing their shit when this movie came out. It was being protested. There were all of these articles being written about how misogynistic it was. And it just, I mean, people were going nuts. And I can kind of see both sides of the coin with it. I have to say that because it was a dream, I can see where we immediately diffuse the situation a little bit because he didn't do these nasty things to Helena. But I don't know how much that really softens the blow of a movie about a guy who basically holds this woman against her will and keeps removing limbs in order to control her. But I would say that that's probably 
less upsetting than most episodes of Criminal Minds that are showing at like four o'clock in the afternoon on a weekday. So uh, where do you guys kind of fall when it comes to the controversy that was happening around this film? And can you see why it was so controversial and what are your thoughts about it? I think part of it was that um, what Jennifer Lynch did with this film is really kind of interesting because she basically took concepts where I think if you're anybody who's studied either underground cinema or cult cinema or for, or, you know, some of the more like uh, extreme foreign films or French films, like say Fernando Arabal and yeah, I mentioned Horowski and, uh, you know, if you're used to that kind of cinema, then I mean, it's still a shocking move, but you're not going to be outraged by it. You're like, Oh, okay. That, you know, that's interesting. Um, but this played to mainstream audiences. So you took something, a concept that is very esoteric and cult and fringe and subject matter and played it towards a mainstream audience. And, and, and on top of that, played it like, an, like, an, uh, like kind of like a sort of pseudo art house film. I mean, the only reason I say pseudo is just, I think things like, you know, making it only a dream and some of the soundtrack choices were definitely very nineties mainstream Hollywood. Um, which I kind of wonder because, I mean, I, I felt like Jennifer Lynch got probably a raw deal with some of the critics partially because everybody's wanting to, you know, they're going to compare it to her dad, which was unf- oh, which yeah. is unfair because she's her own person. She's her own, you know, artist. And she's proven that now. But, of course, you know, back then, they're immediately holding up to her father, never mind the fact that she wrote this film when she was all of 19. And Lynch, before Racerhead, made several short films. I mean, he already got to kind of get his chops honed in a little bit more than Jennifer probably did. And I mean, I can't imagine the script I would have written at 19, you know, too, you know, on top of that, I can't, you know, I, so I think people were very unfair to her um, as far as being outraged. I think the minute you have sexuality with violence, but in a way that's not normal, I mean, seeing women raped and attacked is, is normal in film because it happens in society all the time. It's in the news all the time. So that's a sad state, but it's the truth. This film didn't go rapey, and I thought that was that was the one thing where I think if it had been a cult exploitation film, it might have, but it never did. He never sexually accosts Helena. In fact, it's a, it's a, he almost works his ass off to try and earn her favor because he wants her. He lusts after her, but he wants it to be like where she has invited him. There's no rape, which, you know, which is good. I mean, you know, there's a lot, there's enough rape in other films. So, but I think in some weird ways, it's almost like consensual sexuality is more of a threat to, you know, to a lot of mainstream people than, uh, than if it had been, oh, she's, she's just a victim kind of thing, if that makes any sense. I think if, uh, if it would have gone in the rape direction, you would have lost any kind of feeling towards Dr. Nick at all. I mean, you already didn't particularly like him, but uh, you also didn't really like Helena very much because she was just so just bitchy. And, and but I mean, she didn't obviously deserve to, to be uh, held against her will and have her limbs cut off. But there was kind of a weird sympathy on both sides. Uh, but yeah, if he ended up like just raping her one night or something, that would have completely put him like in in 100% villain uh just as opposed to maybe like 90% villain 10% sympathetic i think that uh like audiences uh back then it's funny that they would attack the movie uh for being misogynistic and all um because i wonder how many 
people knew that it was a female director. I mean, we, there aren't very many female directors to begin with. So for a bunch of people to come out and just attack uh, a movie that was directed by a woman uh, and, and immediately call it misogynistic, it kind of uh, makes me think of a lot of stuff that's going on like right now where you have a lot of uh, women that are in uh, in movies and the video game industry and whatnot, and they're not making – uh, they're not making something that would be traditionally female oriented. So automatically they have like internalized misogyny, which is something that I just, I can't stand hearing. And it's a shame because there are a lot of very talented women out there that are making incredible art that are just being attacked for not making something that uh, is traditionally uh, aimed towards women. It's uh, it's like, look, they're, they're making horror movies and they're making action movies and they're making really awesome, great uh, games and, and cool stuff. Why does it have to be, well, you know, she's a woman, so she has to make romantic comedies. You know, like, let them make the art that they want to make. So I'm glad that uh, Jennifer Lynch was able to continue. I mean, it took her a long time before she directed another movie. She didn't direct another one uh, until, uh, what, Surveillance in 2008? I don't remember. Because there are uh, some people who uh, it's just they've, they've gotten into the industry and they take a long gap because uh, they don't particularly like the, you know, the direction the industry is going or they don't like uh, the way that they're being treated or it's just they, uh, their thing got attacked for whatever reason and they couldn't find work again. Right. My thing, if, if people want to find sexism in early 90s Hollywood cinema, Pretty Woman is way more offensive to women. Oh, God, than, yeah. Yeah, than anything in this movie. I mean, I think, uh, I just think people just, uh, I don't know, they don't they don't realize the real sexism. I mean, I don't think anybody's going to watch Boxing Helena and think, that's what I should do to a woman. If you're thinking <laughs> that already, then you're messed up and you need help, you know, <laughs> but that, <laughs> but that well, people are kind of armed for bear at that time because it's like this is the era of silence of the lambs and basic instinct and i'm trying to remember there was at least one other like you know jade jade but like where people were just like you know out in in i don't want to say out in droves protesting but being very vocal about the protests and stuff and those yes were much more about anti-trans or anti-gay kind of stuff but it was just kind of i want to say in the air and i know that that sounds kind of ignorant but it was definitely like we have a voice we can protest against films that are negative portrayals of people and this one fell right into that whole thing and then when they you know add to the the fire that there are lawsuits that are going on around the film and everything and then add that Jennifer Lynch was the daughter of a director who is coming off of Twin Peaks at the time and you know it's just like it was the perfect storm for her it was a perfect shit storm for her to release this film you know that's the thing is the 90s particularly the early 90s were such a strange era for i think any film dealing with elements of sexuality because of course you know with uh, with pornography in the 80s you had the Mies Commission and you had like all of a sudden you know you can't have this act and this act and this act in an adult film but with softcore cinema you know I think you start seeing more softcore films again you know and cable television certainly helped that but but then you also had AIDS you had you know 
I think more and more like groups. And so you had just this weird batch of like people feeling more guilty. Like all of the sexual revolution and freedom of the sixties and seventies died. Like it all got squashed and up against, you know, people are still going to want to watch something titillating because you're human and you have biology, you know, and you have those urges, but at the same time, you know, you're not, you're, it's dirty. And so anything that was sexual seemed to get protested, like basic instinct. Of course you did have the LGBT elements too, but yet, I mean, people rented it and those films were all over, but you know how, I mean, Helena, at least I think tried to be smart about it. A lot of those films that were quote unquote erotic thrillers, they didn't have a whole lot of brains. Let's be honest. I wish that I had been able to keep a record of all the movies that played off of basic instinct, indecent proposal, and there was at least one or, or two more other films, and then people in the you know the video industry would start making films that were plays off of those titles or mix and match of those titles and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it got to be really kind of ridiculous when I'm there, like stocking the hot single shelves at Blockbuster, and I'm just like, "What the hell is this thing?" You know, <laughs> basic proposal and decent instinct. And, you know, there's just so many of these things. Illicit behavior. Yeah, oh, Fatal Attraction was in there, but then Fatal Beauty was the parody film. Am I remembering right? No, with Sherilyn. No, Fenn, Fatal Fatal Beauty was the that was the Whoopi Goldberg one. Whoopi Goldberg, right? Yes. <laughs> that yeah, which actually uh, that came long before. Yeah, that was completely different thing. <laughs> Fatal Instinct. That's the oh, one. Oh, Fatal. Yes, yes, with um, with Armand Santes. Yes, and Sherilyn. And Fenn. Sherilyn. Hey, Another, bringing it back. Yes, a Carl Reiner joint. Ah. It, one of the parodies that's actually funny. Yeah, it's a little dated now, but uh, still like much better than like the the you know date movie and Meet the Spartans and all that garbage. Yeah. Those guys. Yeah. I'd like to meet them in a dark alley. Me and Ray, <laughs> we would go to town on those guys. <laughs> He'd throw them in the back of his van, and that's right. <laughs> I love when he loses his shit too. When he comes in and sees Helena being armless and legless and he just loses his shit. I mean, it's a total game over sequence. Yes. In order to prepare for this uh, episode, I went ahead and I bought the uh, audiobook version of The Collector, which um, was kind of a scary book to listen to, especially late at night as I'm driving home from work. Um, The Collector by John Fowles, which was turned into a movie two years after it came out, um, starring Terrence Stamp, um, directed by William Wyler, called The Collector as well. And I know, Heather, you saw uh, this a long time ago. So how much of this do you remember? Um, Not a lot, um, because I saw it as a young as a young girl, mainly because I had, um, I'd read about it in a film book at the library and I remember the still from it and being really struck by the oddness because Terrence Stamp, I mean, arguably I would say was one of the most physically beautiful male actors. I mean, which is why he was put to such great use in uh, Vera. I'm going to screw this title up. It's the Bunuel film Vera Dinia. Yes. And, um, so to see Terrence Stamp, again, it's almost like the Julian Sansing to see a man who's really classically beautiful play, a kind of fucked up, controlling, scary character is sort of an interesting thing because usually you have the Beauty and the Beast thing. Where, but what if the Beauty is the Beast? And um, right. and I remember that really striking, uh, being striking to me. I need to honestly rewatch it to be. Uh, but it's I remember it just being really intense and great. And Terrence, I mean, it's Terrence Stamp. I mean, what more do you want? 
<laughs> I have to say that the adaptation was very faithful to the book. The book is interesting because the book's told in four parts, though I have to say the fourth part is like uh, maybe a if if I had written it out, it would have been a page. Um, it's just like five minutes worth of audio. Part one is all told from the Terrence Stamp uh, perspective, the Freddy uh, character. Part two is told from a diary form from the woman that he captures. Mm. It's this guy. It's very, it's very similar to a lot of stuff in Boxing Elena as far as this guy who's living alone he has a lot of money. He has this. Uh, he buys this house. His relatives are away. He doesn't have anybody bothering him, and he has been obsessed with this girl for a long time. And so he's also a butterfly collector, also the, uh, a play on the name and everything. And he ends up capturing this girl, who's played by Samantha Egger in the film, and has this special room on his house and puts her in that and keeps her there. And so the second half is all from her perspective. She talks a lot about her life before she was trapped. And we get kind of like her perspective on some of the events from the first part of the film or first part of the book, which was interesting as well. Um, so in the film, it's much more kind of kept from, um, you know, the distance of the two of them. So it's not as personal as the book was. We don't get those inner monologues, but we do get some good scenes between those two. And it's very much a, a two character, um, film for so much of it. And then the third part goes back to the Freddy character. And the fourth part is also Freddy. And the third part, again, spoilers, uh, if you haven't seen the collector, I would recommend checking this one out in the third part. So I had read that the movie was different than the book and they're very, again, they're very similar. She ends up getting sick and he just lets her die, which was really disturbing. So that's like kind of that fulfillment of the, um, almost the fulfillment of the boxing Helena thing. At one point I thought that he was going to have something happen to him and she would be trapped down in the cellar forever, um, which would have been that candy snatchers thing that you were talking about before Heather, but, um, that doesn't happen, but instead it's just, it's so chilling the way that he is upset and then not upset so quickly about her death and then how he wants to turn himself in and then immediately comes to his senses and no, I'm not going to turn her in or not going to turn myself in. And then immediately turns to another girl who that he thinks he'll have a much better relationship with. And it just, Oh man, it made my skin crawl. So in the, the movie was a really good adaptation of it. Man. Yeah. See, and see, I haven't read the book, so that's really, I think now I need to read the book and then rewatch the movie. That's amazing. You know, no, it's funny. We're thinking of the whole kidnapper controlled women thing two films that came to my mind and it's interesting because this actually has a slight connection to the Pauline uh, Stan case. Cause um, apparently her captor wanted to model her after the main character from story of O the book. Oh, okay. Cause he called her K right. letter K. And, um, and of course with the story of, O, um, you have the, uh, the just Jaken uh, adaptation of the original book, the first book, uh, which that movie is realistically so-so. It's not very good. It's beautifully no. shot. It does have Udo Kier in it, which Udo Kier should be in everything because he really is like ranch dressing. He makes everything better. Who doesn't love Udo Kier? Um, but uh, 
The second one, though, the sequel of sorts, um, which was based on uh, Retour de Rossi, which was sort of the literary sequel to uh, Story of O, uh, Fruits of Passion, made by Shuji Teriyama, is really good. And that one deals with definitely, you know, a woman who voluntarily at first, oh, has you know, agreed to be controlled by Sir Stephen, but ends up kind of like starting to develop her own feelings and has consequences for it and wants to break out. And it's a really smart film. Of course, Mike, you know, I love it because I've, uh, I wrote about it for Cashier's de Cinemart, but it's a really great film. And I mean, it's, it's a little bit different than this, but I mean, Boxing Helena is one that's tying into the whole sexuality and control factor, not so much at an SNM level, but I mean, but power plays have different, different layers. It's like anything else dealing with human sexuality. I have a really weird one that not a lot of people have seen. It's called The Sinful Dwarf from 1973. Have you you know that one? Of course. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it is amazing. It is one of the just most wonderful exploitation movies ever made. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, um, there is a dwarf who uh, lives in his mom's uh, boarding house and the girls that come in, he abducts them and takes them up to the attic and handcuffs or, you know, chains them down and gets them addicted to heroin. And the the guy who plays the, the sinful dwarf is the creepiest dude ever. Like he just he just makes you uncomfortable. And it's a very, very, very weird, unpleasant movie. But uh, it is one of those uh, just movies that exist in the seventies that really couldn't exist outside of there. So yeah, I, I really dig that one because it's just so bizarre and really creepy and just unpleasant. Wow. I think a lot of those new French films like the um, hot tension and martyrs and stuff, those really feel to, to me at least to play into this whole captured women kind of thing as well. But we don't necessarily, see the captors that much, especially in martyrs. I mean, I don't remember us dealing with the captors uh, as much as we would like a Dr. Nick or a, uh, a, a Freddy from the collector. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Martyrs was more, um, well, at first it starts off as a completely different movie and then it shifts gears, yeah. which I really liked because, uh, y- y- they kept you on your toes. You didn't really know what kind of movie it was going to turn into, but, um, it definitely got, uh, it's, you know, about the halfway point. It turned into a movie more about the victims and you, you very rarely saw the uh, the people who had captured them. They would kind of show up and, you know, punch them or do whatever they needed to do to keep them uh, miserable. But, uh, yeah, it definitely really became about the victims and then, you know, victim. Uh, yeah, Martyrs, Martyrs was a very, very uh, polarizing movie. There are, you know, people who I, I personally think uh, I think it's a brilliant movie simply because. Um, I like it when movies completely will subvert your expectations and they have the balls to do the things that a lot of other movies don't. Because uh, that's what keeps art pushing forward, is taking risks and doing things that are going to piss people off. This was a kind of movie that was not made in a boardroom. It was not made to appeal to a wide audience. It was made really almost to appeal to no one. You know, it was like, but this was the director's vision. He made it and he had no you know, bones about it. He was like, this is the movie that I wanted to make. 
and it will find its audience. And it did. And I am very curious because they just remade it. And I, if you haven't seen the trailer yet, the trailer makes it look like a completely different movie. And they focus on uh, a lot of different aspects of it. It looks more like they're going more. They're going more the gore route. Now, not to say that Martyrs wasn't gory. Martyrs was very gory, but it was more about the uh, the tension and the atmosphere than the gore. Uh, this it looks like it's really focusing on that. So, uh, and of course, they they kind of spoil the whole thing in the trailer. Uh, so I'm curious as to see the. I, I have a feeling the movie, the remake is going to be bad. It looks like they took away everything that made the original interesting and are just making it into a movie where oh, all right well they got these girls and they're just going to torture them they don't it doesn't have quite that that same atmosphere and the whole point of the whole thing yeah and they seem to i mean yeah they're, they're kind of giving it away just by the first few shots of the trailer where they're focusing in on the crosses and all these things i'm like oh okay yeah, and they great. spell out they're like martyrs they're and it's like they they explain what they are and it's like stop it <laughs> you're ruining it yeah that was like the only twist i kind of liked in the film the original was just like oh okay now i know there's actually a point to this being a torture point. Yeah, it's film. not just they're they're doing it for the sake of doing it. There's actually reasoning behind it. When I was trying to think of women in peril films in relation to boxing Haleda, the thing the thing that kept sticking with me is I read a quote from uh, from Jennifer Lynch saying that would she, you know, and I don't know if her perspective on this has changed, like in, you know, over the years after making it, but her original intention was more about obsessive love. And not so much like a horror, you know, to me, I never really thought of it as like a horror movie, to be honest with you. And I almost, to me, it made me think more of like, you know, growing up, you, you read fairy tales where, you know, like uh, Beauty and the Beast, where, you know, the women, are, yeah, and they're not necessarily being kidnapped, but they've ended up in a circumstance against their volition and they want to go, but they're being kind of kept in, in this gothic castle situation. And there's a weird fairy tale quality almost like that where it's like, you know, I mean, maybe Beauty and the Beast is the ultimate Stockholm Syndrome story. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> you know, albeit with supernatural elements. You know, but I, I didn't really think of this as a horror movie. I didn't really – I can't really put it next to, like, all the – there's so many movies. I mean, like, you know, I, you mentioning Cecil the Sinful Dwarf. Of course, we've got Bloodsucking Freaks if you want to talk about women being put you – know, Oh, God, yeah. But yet with clear conscience, I really I can't connect those type of films to this one. I just think it's a completely different animal. I think it's almost closer to like some weird dysfunctional fairy tale for Nick. It's it, that's the interesting thing, isn't it? Is that you know he's almost the princess, or, you know, and she's the beast. But it's you know I don't know. There's a lot of like I don't. There's a lot of interesting ways one could take it, but I I just could, could not really view it as a horror film, even though. It does have some horrific elements to it. I didn't really feel like they were played as horror. I just feel like they were played more for surrealism and for an insight into this character of this man. Well, I think it's kind of brilliant casting that Art Garfunkel, albeit he's not in the film for very much, but when he's in there, for me, he's this reminder of the Nick Rogue film, Bad Time, Essential Obsession, which to me, again, is about obsessive love and the way that he wants to kind of change and mold the Teresa Russell character to be, you know, his ideal. And I can definitely see that as being, you know, he's, he's almost like the father figure 
to Nick, the mysterious father figure that we never really get to see at the beginning, for me is kind of a stand-in uh, of uh, Art Garfunkel and him having this experience in this other film. You know, is kind of like he's almost a warning to uh, Doctor Nick to be like, don't be like me. You know, don't don't do what I did because it, things turned out bad. And so I, I thought that it was very clever that he was in there for the for his uh, few minutes of screen time. Oh, absolutely, yeah. No, and I thought I thought he kind of gave he was like maybe the closest thing we had to like a relate. I mean, I don't want to say relatable character, but like, and the girlfriend to me just seemed almost like just oh, she's kind of an opposite arc female archetype. You know, she's she's the goody. You know, she's the kind of you know I don't Marianne versus Ginger sort of thing. Where the Art Garfunkel character seemed like, this seems like a regular guy that you could see, he seemed like the most normal human being, I guess you could say. (laughs) He's like the voice of reason to me. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I would say that had this movie been made at a different time, Rita Wilson would have been playing the girlfriend. Oh. Oh, great. And we would have had a great love scene set to some Melissa Manchester as opposed to Enigma. (laughs) I do like those quotes from Lynch where she talks about how you give yourself over to people and you change yourself for somebody else or other people will affect change upon you. Obviously not as extreme as, you know, cutting off your arm kind of thing, but you know, it's, uh, it's interesting to think of the way that we change for each other as we get into these relationships. One movie I just wanted to bring up real quick. Um, I would be shocked if either of you guys had seen this, um, but I will recommend it to people. Um, hesitantly, there's a documentary out there called Whole, W-H-O-L-E, and it is about people who feel that they have too many limbs or people that feel that their limbs don't necessarily belong to them. Um, you know, uh, CSI is infamous for kind of doing like a quote unquote freak of the week kind of thing. And it was weird because we watched this, my wife and I watched this documentary and literally the next week, Gil Grissom is dealing with somebody who has cut off their own leg because it doesn't feel like it belonged to them. So somebody, somebody in the writer's room at CSI was definitely, you know, on our Netflix queue kind of thing. Uh, actually, I don't even know if this movie's on Netflix, but if you guys ever get a chance and you are brave enough to do it, I would say check out Hole um, because it is very interesting. Going back to the film, there's that line that Helena says, you know, where, you know, he's like, you know, Nick's actually saying, you know, if you, you know, people lie out of love or lie, lie to about their sexual performance. It's right after the whole, you know, premature ejaculation thing with Anne. And she, and she goes on this whole thing about, yeah, you lie to somebody when you love them and you don't want to hurt their feelings. And that's what love is. And which is kind of, kind of a messed up statement, but you know, it's just, I don't know. There's a lot of interesting psychology there. Just like, you know, lying, and just you know this dishonesty being accepted as normal and just realizing that both of them what they whatever they've accepted as healthy relationship patterns both of them are screwed yeah they were both damaged yeah in another world they might have actually worked together i mean because had she been able to find some sort of respect for him i mean she would have been a perfect top because he was definitely a perfect bottom oh yeah <laughs> Although I, I could, I, she, he would be the kind of guy, the the character of Doctor Nick, not so much uh, Julian Sands, but uh, I could see 
uh, her strapping one on and, uh, you know, she's going to give it to him for a change. Sure. Why not? This is weird. This is actually the second episode I've been on the show where pegging has come up as a topic. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what this says about us, Mike. (laughs) Stick around. It shows up a lot. I'm I'm just saying. Last week, we talked about contact, and I I took it in a whole different direction. All right, guys. So let's take another break and play trailer for next week's show. One day, a professional killer went home to visit his family and found his brother murdered. Now, who killed him? I don't know nothing. Listen, the only reason I came back to this crap house was to find out who did it. And I'm not leaving till I do. Michael Caine is Carter, a man with unbridled hate. Do you want to be dead, Albert? For Christ's sake! You knew what I'd do, didn't you, Albert? Christ, I didn't kill him! I know he did! When a professional killer hates, he turns animal. And there becomes but one law in the underworld jungle. Get Carter! Get Carter. Before Carter gets you. Don't let us interrupt you. Now. Don't you think you ought to get dressed first? Come on, Jack, put it away. You know you won't use it. <laughs> the gun he needs. <laughs> Out. Carter, the heated killer. The cool lover. You, Margaret. Take your clothes off. A few words. Decisive action. <laughs> Hate drives the hunter. No, no! Fear pursues the hunted. They have killed me! They killed my brother! He's dead! <laughs> I... Carter. Spreading terror with an uncontrolled trigger. Carter was a killer by profession. Now he is a killer by instinct. Michael Kane is Carter. Get Carter before Carter gets you. All right, we're back next week with a triple dose of Get Carter, where we'll be talking about three adaptations of Ted Lewis's book, Jack's Return Home. Until then, I want to thank this week's special guest co-hosts, Heather Drain and Cecil Trachtenberg. Heather, what has been going on since we last chatted way back when you were on the Dr. Caligari episode? Well, Mike, I've been keeping busy. Of course, I'm working on a book project right now about the works of Stephen Sadian, speaking of Dr. Calgary. I'm still contributing to Dangerous Minds, and in fact, I just had an article go up about the 1977 Carter Stevens uh, film noir punk rock, which has some great footage of bands like The Fast, uh, Mexico's Kansas City stuff, very good. Uh, and of course, I have my own website, Mondo Heather, where you can read all kinds of great articles about French film and culture. French film? French. <laughs> Well, oh, actually, okay. there is a French film on there, so it's I do do 
fringe French films on occasion as well. Yes. So, Cecil, what's happening with you over at the Good Bad Flicks site? Um, well, right now I'm working on uh, my Christmas uh, stuff. I just put out an episode about the um, the film uh, Rare Exports, which was a, a very unusual uh, movie about Santa Claus. And I'm also doing um, a movie about Silent Night, Deadly Night, which is one of the most controversial movies ever made it's uh it's gonna be fun because i've had a lot of people requesting that one and uh so i'm kind of working on that uh you know working on the site i'm also working at uh, a website called uh the escapist so that's uh, escapistmagazine.com where uh, you can find my stuff uh, a week ahead of time and then after that uh, it goes to my youtube channel and my website and whatnot uh, I'm also working on a very, very, very unusual film for the end of the year. Uh, I may have discovered the next Birdemic. So I'm mm. really excited about that because I have yet to see anybody really talking about this particular movie. So uh, I'm, I'm, I, I got a good feeling. It, it's just one of those magical, horrible movies. <laughs> It's not I Am Here Now, is it? No, no, but I do know about I Am Here Now. I actually, uh, uh, it's a movie, um, it's called Infested. Mm. It's uh, from 2002. Uh, it's actually, it had a pretty decent cast. It had uh, Zach Galligan from Gremlins and um, uh, Amy Jo Johnson, who was the Pink Ranger from um, the Power Rangers. And... Apparently, uh, they spent all their money on those two actors and then on the soundtrack because the CGI is some of the worst CGI in history. Awesome. <laughs> so and it's a lot of fun. So I really hope that, uh, you know, that that gets some attention because uh, it is a winner slash loser. Well, thank you, Cecil. Thank you, Heather, for coming on the show. It's always great to talk to you guys. We will have links to where folks can find out more about you two over at our website, projection-boot.com. We'll also have links over there so people can go to our iTunes, rate and review the show, and a link over to our Patreon where you can give us your hard-earned cash. Those are just a few ways that you can help us take over the world.
this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise.